podcast where we take famous songs from history and show them a little r-e-s-p-e-c-t ow, ow. i'm aviv rubenstein i'm one of your hosts i'm a writer and musician and podcaster and i have a co-host who's who's the boss she's just the boss of the show uh and her name is Lindsay tucker it is i Lindsay tucker what, what's your what's your deal Lindsay tucker I am a journalist and magazine writer and editor, lover of music, and obsessive researcher. Obsessive researcher. So the tables have turned a little bit today because I'm the one doing the research and I'm very, I feel very uh, inadequate. But I feel that I'm in the hot seat. I feel a lot of pressure to, to so be let's, funny. So let's, <laughs> let's switch back then. You can just read my research. Okay. So today, if you couldn't guess from the top of the show, we're doing the classic song, Respect. So, Lindsay, mm-hmm. would you like to hear the song? Would you, you've, have you heard the song before? Never. Really? No, yeah, I've heard it. Well, so you can't fucking do that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. Who sings the song? Who, who, who are we talking about? Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin. So would you like to listen to Aretha Franklin saying Respect? Sure. For the listeners, Lindsay is hardcore lip syncing right now. I once won a lip sync championship at summer camp. To this song? No. Oh, what to what song? It's just my skill set. Oh. Your secret talent is lip syncing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You and Paul Rudd. Soulmates. So fun fact about Aviv is that when I was five or six in kindergarten, I think that I was supposed to lip sync to the song with my entire kindergarten class. And I believe that I I either blocked it out or like didn't do it because I was too shy to do it in front of people. But I, I remember learning the lyrics to this song to lip sync it when I was like five or six years old. This song? This song, yeah. Oh, and then you just bailed? I either bailed or or did it and like blacked it out because I was, I mean, this was almost 30 years ago, so I don't know. Okay. But for as long as I can remember, I've known the words to this song. So, you've heard the song before. Yes. Um, what in your, like, as a, as a person who has probably grown up with the song, um, what do you think the song's about? I think it's about uh, a woman who just wants a little respect when... <laughs> okay. <laughs> what was your Her first partner, clue? <laughs> she, he, they, when they come home, she just wants a little respect. And there's going to be some kind of money exchange. The kisses are sweeter than honey, but so is her money. Sure. So is she buying a prostitute? Yeah, you nailed it. We'll see you next week, everyone. <laughs> so um, so I actually first, before we get into the song, I actually want to talk about Aretha Franklin for a little bit. Because this song is it ha- comes about kind of an interesting 
an interesting road. This song was Aretha's first number one hit in 1967. Um, this is from Carl Wilson at Slate, and the article's called How Aretha Franklin Created Respect. So it became Aretha's first number one hit, and as Wexler said, Wexler is the producer of the song, virtually defined the natural consciousness at that moment in history when the civil rights movement was near its height and the push for women's liberation was just beginning. As Ritz notes, who's the writer of the book, the track's arrival on the charts on April 29th that year came after the day after Muhammad Ali was stripped of his heavyweight boxing title for refusing to be drafted into the Vietnam War, his proclamation that he owed no one deference to a nation that never had respected his own people. So ah. al- already there's kind of some like embroiling of, of civil and gender equality into this song. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, by virtue of the fact that that it is an empower, not just an empowering song, but that it came out in 1967. So like everything was everything. And she wrote it. Is she the writer? We're going to we're going to get there. Let's go through it. Right. So okay, okay, Ar- okay. Aretha Louise Franklin was born March 25th, 1942. And she began, like most women of color, singing gospel mm. where her father C.L. Franklin was a minister. She was, it was right. in De- Detroit. Okay. So just after her mom died, when she was 10, she began singing solos. In, at church. At church, right? Okay. So it doesn't say that she like replaced her mom, but there is an implication that she replaced her mom as the soloist in uh, Jesus Be a Fence Around Me. And uh, when she turned 12, uh, her father would start bringing her on the road on like a gospel caravan on tour so she could perform in various churches. So like even at a young age, even before she was a teenager, her father recognized her talent, was a minister. Um, it doesn't seem super exploitative like like Joe Jackson or something, like Michael mm-hmm. Jackson's dad. But mm-hmm. it seemed like he truly believed his, his shtick and wanted to tour with his daughter he has uh three daughters was she like the oldest the youngest the middle so caroline and irma franklin caroline Caroline. yeah that's actually what that song is about no i'm kidding um (laughs) so she she was two years older than caroline and younger than irma irma was six years older than she was and caroline was two years younger than she was and carl actually carl elan keely was also her sister was a, is a is a woman named Carl. Okay, I call Carly Carl all the time. So and she had three sisters, three sisters, and a, and a brother Vaughn. Oh, okay. So yeah, sorry. There was a third a third sister in there named <laughs> Carl. Forgive forgive my gendered confusion. Um, but yeah, it se- yeah, yeah. seemed like she was smack dab in the middle. But she was she clearly had like a talent, and so she signed her. So first- they weren't like. The Von Trapp family. It was just her. So the the uh, they were more like the Jacksons in that Aretha was the lead and the others sang back up. At least Irma and Caroline sang back up. She signed her first record deal with JVB Recordings, and they actually outfitted his church, um, CL Franklin's church, with recording equipment. And she recorded her first release in 1956. At his church with with the recording equipment that JVB Records gave them. So this was very, very, it was a spirituals album. So it was very, very okay. like. She's like a teen. She's a teen. Um, and, and it's like all faith all the time. She's f- like 14 years old. Okay. She would travel as a young gospel singer. She spent summers on the gospel circuit in Chicago. And she was friends with like. Mavis Staple and Quincy Jones and Dinah Washington, all the, and, and everyone kind of was like, oh shit, Aretha is like the next big thing. Britney. Yeah. The next, yes, the next Britney. (laughs) At the age of 16, she went on tour with a man that you may be familiar with. His name is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, hey. And so she would, because he was, once again, like a gospel guy. And so this is 1958. And so he's just starting his to, to be, a, be a, a mover and shaker on the civil rights scene. And she would sing to, like, open his rallies. How did she get connected with him? It was through the church connection? Uh, it was through the church connection, Reverend, Reverend Doctor. But also, yeah, because not just the church connection, but gospel singing. Um, she also met Sam Cooke. At around that time, mm-hmm. and Marvin Gaye, 
because Marvin Gaye was her sister's boyfriend. And Marvin Gaye was her sister's boyfriend. Okay. Marvin Gaye was her sister's boyfriend. And, and when did Sam Cooke die? All, all these questions I wasn't expecting to answer. So Sam Cooke died in 1964. And this was in? This was in the 50s still. Okay. okay so, okay, okay. so yeah, respect is respect is is released in 67 so she's still a teenager she's it's like 50 1958 1959 and she's making friends with marvin gay um who was her the boyfriend of her sister ray charles sam cook so she's meeting all of these other greats including this dude named james cleveland who was known as the king of gospel music and i've never heard of james cleveland before which is why i like kind of singled him out as opposed to the other singers who were mostly like motown and soul right so at the age of 18 she made a specific decision to secularize herself she told her dad that she wanted to be like sam cook she wanted to be like these other people that she was around and go with like pop music so she moved to new york and her dad moved with her and produced her first demo, which uh, got her signed to Columbia Records. It was just a two-song demo. So she signed to Columbia Records in 1960 as a 5% artist. What, so tell me what you think a 5% artist is. The percentage of the money that she would make. Yeah. I mean, f- for all intents and purposes, yeah. A 5% artist is, is a, a lower tier of artist who makes a, a very small fraction of the royalties of a thing as opposed to some of the bigger stars who made more more money it was it's tough to say whether the five percent i like did a lot of research on what a five percent artist was and i can't actually prove that they only got five percent but just that that was the label for like the lower tier there's also like a sect of the nation of islam called the five percent which i was Mm -hmm. like was aretha franklin in the nation of islam turns out no so Meanwhile, Barry Gordy, who's the founder of Motown, wanted to sign Aretha Franklin to and her eldest and her older sister Irma to Tamla Records, which became Motown Records. But this is 1960, so her dad didn't think that the record label was established enough, and so he turned them down and instead went with Columbia. So had he took a chance on Tamla, which became Motown, we could have been telling an entirely different story. So who is her dad, though, to be so savvy in the music industry? That's a really good question. It doesn't seem like he was anyone specifically special. He was a Baptist minister who was very like famous for being a Baptist minister. He had a nickname, which was the Million Dollar Voice. And oh. all he did basically was be... Aretha Franklin's manager. He was friends with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which is probably what led to to their connection, Dr. King and Aretha. But yeah, and he was he was shot twice in 1979 and was in a coma for five years. But that's not. Oh my god, about I was about story. to be like, he sounds like Jessica Simpson's dad, but then it took a turn. Yeah, um, more like uh, Michael Jordan's dad, but he wasn't. He he was in a coma for five years, passed away 19. In, he passed away in 1984. We don't get into the 70s or 80s in this story. Was there some kind of sex scandal with him? He allegedly held orgies in their home. Is the, where, where are you seeing this? The Mirror, the Daily Mail, the Inquisitor. <laughs> You're making this shit up. Aretha Franklin's from her orgy-loving... Fi- yeah, the Mirror.uk is, is a much better... A much better... <laughs> We need to address the rumors. Okay, so yes. So I'm just learning now that there are rumors that he had orgies. But this this story ends with respect. So I don't think he was having orgies just yet. Okay, sorry for the derailment. You're ki- killing me here. Because the song's about, this show's about the song. I'm just giving you some background info on Aretha, and now we're now we're really down the rabbit hole. In 1960- I respect orgies, so I just had to bring a little respect when I come home to her dad's orgies. To the, yeah, that's what, actually what the song's about. Right. Um, so in 1961, Columbia released her uh, Aretha's first non-gospel album. Um, it was called Aretha with the Ray Bryant Combo, which is not a great name. No. And it featured her first single to chart on the billboard hot 100 which 
was won't be long. It peaked at number seven on the R&B chart. But she's starting to expand her musical horizons. So this album combines old standards, j- vocal jazz, like scat singing, blues, doo-wop, rhythm and blues. However, she wasn't a super success at Columbia. And oh, so the... Why? Just didn't sell enough records. Okay. And so her the label executive, whose name is John Hammond, which also is the guy from Jurassic Park's name, he said that, like, you know, looking back on it, he said that he didn't understand Aretha's gospel background, and he failed to integrate that into her musical stylings moving forward. So they didn't sell enough records at Columbia, but they also didn't kind of acknowledge the gospel sound as it could pertain to popular music, right? They had her Mm -hmm. doing things that were already established. So she didn't have enough creative license or freedom? Um, it, It wasn't even about her own creativity. I think it was about kind of understanding the melding of genres because Aretha was the product, right? They were selling Aretha and they couldn't figure out, they tried to kind of deny the gospel thing when they should have embraced mm, it and mm-hmm. let let that be part of her music. This is a lot like Jessica Simpson. It is kind of like Jessica Simpson. <laughs> so in November 1966, the Columbia record contract expired and she moved over to Atlantic. And so the guy who was in charge of producing her first Atlantic record was this dude jerry wexler and he did want to take advantage of the gospel background and his philosophy was to create this kind of mixed rhythm and blues with gospel and that's eventually what became known as soul music right so this this jerry wexler fellow was who was this like jewish guy from manhattan saw the opportunity to to mix the the gospel and the rhythm and blues and he actually coined the term rhythm and blues. He sounds like a real white savior character, like he, in a movie. So, so actually, <laughs> it's it, it's a that's a perfect segue because he is a white savior character in a movie in three oh, movies. No. Oh no! So he's <laughs> he is uh, portrayed by Richard Schiff in Ray because he also worked with okay. Ray Charles. Okay. He, he's being portrayed by Mark Marin in the Aretha no Franklin way. movie Respect. Oh, I love Mark Marin. Have us on your podcast, Mark. And by David Cross in the television show Genius the Aretha Franklin story. So, he is he is the if you've ever seen Walk Hard the Dewey Cox story, he is the 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 rabbi looking motherfucker that comes in and says, "Hey, this this person has something going." Right. And mm-hmm. so it is unclear, at least in my research, how much pressure C.L. Franklin or Aretha put on Wexler to do this. But Wexler gets all the credit. Yeah, of course. Of course. So now we're in 1966, in November. Aretha signs with Atlantic Records. Jerry Wexler is like, this is how we're going to do this thing. Or C.L. Franklin and Jerry Wexler together are like, this is how we're going to do this thing. Or C.L. Wexler, Jerry Franklin, and Aretha Franklin are all together are like, this is how we're going to do this thing. I hope she's there. She is there. She <laughs> is there. But as, as a black woman in the 60s, I have to imagine that a lot of decisions were being made for her, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, so we're getting ready for for her to go into the studio to record Respect. What studio? Good question. Wexler Mm. booked them time at Muscle Shoals Studio, Mm. a famed studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which is a very, very famous studio. The Stones recorded Brown Sugar and Wild Horses there. But Aretha Franklin only spent one day at Fame Studio because an altercation broke out between her manager, who was her husband, Ted White, and the owner of the studio, Rick Hall, and and a horn player. And so they like Mr. White in the hall with the horn. Exactly. But by all accounts, Rick Hall was like a huge dick. But ten days later, on Valentine's Day, nineteen sixty-seven. Everyone except for so all of the people from Muscle Shoals who are called like the Swampers or whatever, all of them come up to New York to record the song. Everyone is there except for Ted White, who I have to stress was her husband. So are they in a fight? Question mark. <laughs> and Aretha records this song and the song was released the following month. 
So, so everyone from Muscle Shoals goes to New York. And Ted White is like not allowed in on Valentine's Day for Aretha to sit to record this song. It was Valentine's Day? Valentine's Day, 1967. Okay. Okay. So now let's take a giant jump backwards, right? So she's in the studio. She's going to record Respect. Who wrote Respect? I don't know. I'm going to send you a link. Okay. So Respect was actually written and recorded by Otis Redding in 1965. Two years before. So who did the socket to me's first? Oh, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about the socket to me's. We'll talk about everything. All right. I do like this little horn thing they got going on. So he's soliciting a prostitute. Is that is that your your guess? That's your final answer? Yeah. He just wants a little fucking respect when he pays for sex. When he pays for sex. <laughs> So this song is only two minutes long. Describe for the folks at home. What is different about this song? What is added? What um, is taken away? It's kind of like like a little ditty with some horn, like trumpets, doing a little riffing. This, this is my music journalism skills getting put to really good use here. Nailed it. Very, less soulful. Less soulful. Yeah. He's kind of just like, give me respect for my sex. And then... Yeah, so it so it is it is a little bit more of like a straightforward proto rock and roll song, and like very much like just like in time on its beat mm-hmm. it doesn't stray from. It, yeah, it is not it is not really syncopated. the The first the melody is still syncopated, so it goes one two what you want or whatever it is. So um, we'll talk a little bit about the musicality in a second. But what is notably missing from the song? R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And? Sakatumi, Sakatumi, Sakatumi. Right. So let's, let's jump all the way back to 1965. So this is from a website called the Pop Culture Experiment. So the story goes that upon returning home from a tour, Otis Redding felt that his wife wasn't treating him the way he should have been treated. And he complained to his band's drummer, Al Jackson. And Al Jackson was not sympathetic. Quote, what are you griping about? You're on the road all the time. All you can look for is a little respect when you come home. And so that oh. last that last sentence was worked into this song, Respect. And so according to Pop Culture Experiment, Redding wrote the song as a ballad for his tour manager, whose name is Speedo Sims. And Sims- Speedo Sims? Yes. Uh, do you, is that your uncle? You said it like you know him. <laughs> The Speedo um, no. Sims? <laughs> I just liked the name. Yeah. So so Redding had written the song for Speedo Sims as a ballad for Speedo Sims to return to record with his band, which was called The Singing Demons. But Otis Redding was inspired to alter the lyrics and tempo because of his conversations with Jackson. But Sims never released a version of the song because Sims was unable to record a usable version. Apparently, he was not a very good singer. Speedo, his version had not enough speed? So yes, 
it was a ballad. Speedo was did not have a very speedy version and did not have a good singing voice. But okay. <laughs> N- NPR tells a slightly different story, which was that Respect was brought to Otis Redding by Speedo Sims, who intended to record it with his band, The Singing Demons. No one is sure who wrote the original version of the song. The band leader, Perry Welsh, said it was the guitarist Bobby Smith's idea. And Redding took Sims's version, rewrote the lyrics, sped up the tempo. Sims went with his band to Muscle Shoals Studios, the same studios <laughs> that Aretha like bailed on two years later, and was, quote, unable to produce a good version. And then Redding eventually said, fuck it, I'll do it myself, which Sims agreed to. And Redding, Otis Redding promised to credit Sims on the the writing of the song but according it, to npr according to npr but this never okay. happened right sims never pressed otis writing on the issue possibly because he himself had not written it in the first place so npr is like we think this but we don't know mm-hmm. so so there is a big question mark over who wrote the original respect it was either speedo sims otis redding or this guy bobby smith or it was a guitarist at Bobby Smith's recording studio. So some other fucking guitarist. Okay. The song was included on Otis Redding's third studio album, which is called Otis Blue. And it became widely successful, even outside of R&B. It was like a crossover hit. It was released in the summer of 1965. And it reached number five on the Black Singles chart and po- uh, co- crossed over onto pop radio on the white audience. And it peaked at number 35 overall. And at the time, it was Otis Redding's second lo- second biggest crossover hit. And it kind of busted down a wall for him. But the interesting thing about this is, like, this was already a hit song before Aretha Franklin got to it, right? So this would be like if someone, if, let's say, Britney Spears re-recorded an Ed Sheeran song. Or if Taylor Swift re-recorded a... Phoebe Bridgers song. That does happen though, right? Like you see like I feel Ed Sheeran or someone like does, or Ryan Adams will record a Taylor Swift song. Yes, right. Ryan Ryan Adams did the whole Taylor Swift album. Fun. We should do a a, a motion sickness episode on the Phoebe Bridgers song Motion Sickness. Emotional motion sickness? Yeah, cuz it's about Ryan Adams. It is? Yes. And okay. how much of a prick he is. Anyway, yeah, so this was already hit. People already knew it. And then Aretha did it, and it took it into the fucking stratosphere. This is from Matt Dobkin um, from the book. Who that? He's, he's the writer of a book called I Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You, Aretha Franklin, Respect, and the Making of a Soul Masterpiece. Redding's version is characteristically funky with his raspy soulfulness, singing, and electric vocal charisma front and center. His song utilizes, quote, playful horns and sexy mock beleaguered vocals to deliver lyrics without any subtext. The message. What's a mock beleaguer? I don't know. That's like a good question. <laughs> I was wondering that too. This is a quote, so I don't. This is a quote okay. from this guy, Matt Dobkin. Okay. So I Sorry, can't keep going. It. Keep going. To deliver lyrics with any subtext, the message of a man demanding respect from his woman for being the breadwinner is decisively clear. So you're not super wrong about this like idea of sex work, right? There is this, I'm, gi- I'm providing for you, I'm giving you my money, and mm-hmm. you owe me some respect and affection, right? Mm-hmm. The perspective of a hardworking man who can only look forward to getting home and finally receiving the respect he deserves from his family. His version is less a plea for respect and more a comment on a man's feeling of worth in his work, life, and home. Oh, please, please, please. Boo fucking who? Once again, I'm Don just Draper. I'm just <laughs> quoting this guy. He mentions that he's, quote, about to just give you all my money and that he wants... In return, and all he wants in return is respect. The woman he's singing to can even do me wrong, honey, if you want to. You can do me wrong while I'm gone. The lyrics are repetitive and straightforward throughout the song. There isn't any layering of messages or intentions. He says you can do me wrong, and then Aretha says I would never do you wrong. Exactly. So, couple fi- couple quick things before we get into the kind of comparisons between the Aretha version and the Otis Redding version. I want to just read the list of people who played on this this track. So Otis Redding is the lead vocals, and it's basically the band is Booker T and the MGs, who you might know from this song. They have a song called Green Onions, which if you don't know the title, you definitely know the music. Oh yeah, I know the song. Yeah, so this is Green Onions. 
Booker T and the MGs. This is an instrumental song from 1962. So this was already like a hit. But a lot of people use the MGs as a backing band. So these these players are pretty pretty well known. So Booker T Jones was on the keyboards or Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes as as the theme from Shaft, Isaac Hayes. Steve Cropper on the guitar, Donald Duck Dunn on the bass guitar, Al Jackson Jr. on the drums. And so these people, and there's a bunch of horns that I can list, Earl Sims, William Bell, Floyd Newman, Andrew Love, Gene Bolegs Miller, Wayne Jackson, right? But the first four that I listed are the Blues Brothers band. Steve Cropper, Donald Duck Dunn, and Alan Jackson are in the Blues Brothers movie and the Blues Brothers show band. And who else is in the Blues Brothers movie but Aretha Franklin? But she doesn't sing Respect. What does she sing? She have says, I ever seen the Blues Brothers movie? Have you? No. That's great. Um, Isn't it Dan Aykroyd? Is in the movie, yeah. He's one of the Blues Brothers. Okay. One of the eponymous Blues Brothers. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dan I have Aykroyd. maybe seen the trailer for it. So, so the Blues Brothers show, it's like a blues band. So basically the band is Booker T and the MG's backing band. But Aretha is in the movie, and she sings Think. Think. Think, think, think about what you're trying to do to me. In, in, a, in a scene which could have just had respect in it. So between 1965 and 1967, so between the original release of the song and Aretha just like completely upper decking this cover, a handful of other artists covered this song. And so I'll send you like a rapid fire list of other versions of this song from between Otis Redding and Aretha. So this first one is the St. Louis Union, which is a English mod rock band. Okay, so we're getting closer. To what? The Aretha version. Yeah, but this is still very, very much just like a straight cover of Otis Redding, just sped up a little bit with some with some tambourine. It's a little more soulful. A little bit more opinion. soulful, which is funny because these are a bunch of white guys from England. There was uh, they are uh, yeah. St. Louis Union is a British mod rock band. Okay. Um, okay, and so you also have this guy Johnny Rivers do a cover. Is this normal for a song to be covered so many times in the span of a couple years? So this so so this is this is my main point about uh about the music of the 60s and the beginnings of soul music and R&Bs. The answer is yes. That like okay. a, it it was super super common to just like do your own version of this song. Right? So Johnny Rivers also is the guy who sings Secret Agent Man. Oh really? Yeah. So there was one done by the Austri are you are you done with Johnny? I'm done with that. I'm done with so Johnny done. Rivers. There's one with uh by the Australian rock band Ray Brown and the Whispers. Ooh, I'm excited for this one. Yep, yep. So this sounds like basically exactly like the Otis Redding version. Except yes, it for does. in stereo. <laughs> and the singing is very um, It's croony. Crooner. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then there's uh, the Rationals, who is are like a proto garage rock band. If you know anything about me, you know that this one's my favorite. So basically, these are just like all kinds of different voicings of the Otis version, right? In this one, it doesn't have horns. It has guitar and, and oohs and ahs. And the last one I'm going to send to you is by a Greek band called The Charms. The Charms. The Charms. So this just sounds like a Greek wedding band singing. Respect. Yeah, I don't even know how to explain it. I'm like, it's zippy. It is zippy. <laughs> There's like a kazoo track on it. Yes, exactly. 
So Aretha had been performing Respect live on the road, and ah. and so fan favorite. It was it was a it was a fan favorite, and so she records the song, as I mentioned, Valentine's Day, nineteen sixty-seven, when her husband is not there. A lonely Valentine's Day. A lonely Valentine's Day. It reached number one on the R&B chart. It peaked at number nine on the Billboard Hot 100. It was her first top ten single, and it was named number five on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. When? December 2004. Okay. I actually remember having that issue. Like, I bought really? that issue it was at, on a, the cover. at a store. It's just the 500 Zac greatest Efron. songs of all time. Oh, okay. Yeah, Zach Efron pulling up his shirt. <laughs> We got a problem, though, Uh-oh. because the, the publishing rights are owned by Otis Redding, right? He wrote the song, even though Aretha put in the R-E-S-P-E-C-T and the Socket to Me. The Socket to Me <laughs> thing was um, something that she and her sisters had done, like, on stage. And it was kind of like, I don't want to say like an inside joke, but it was like a thing that they did. And there was like... Not a moral panic, but there was like kind of a, a, a raised eyebrow as to what Sakatumi meant. And so they're like, is that sexual? Like, are we sucking it to you with our penises in your vagina? And they're like, mm, fucking no. What? So this is from Ben Cicero at the New York Times. For the roughly seven million times the song has been played on American radio station, she was paid nothing due to an aspect of copyright law that has long irked the record business in which radio stations pay the writers and publishers of the song, but not the performers. This inequity has made Aretha's respect an anthem for musicians fighting for their rights as well. So the so on the radio, the performers don't get paid. If they sell the records, they do get paid. Oh, so when something plays on the radio... The performer does not get paid unless they have a specific deal with the record company or publisher saying that they get paid. And how does how did that work like before Clear Channel when you want your song on the radio are you are you paid per spin per or spin. is it a lump sum Yeah so you would be, you would be paid per spin the the stations would have to note what they played and when and then at the end of the month they would send a check to your publisher Okay It was tougher to get placed in different markets because there was no clear channel sending emailing your song to anybody so people had to crawl the country and visit every radio station in every market in order to get them to play their song so that used to be my job at wrs because we were independent so we would just get hundreds of cds and if you're on music staff you had to take like 50 home a night listen to them all mark them yeah so Uh, This is from the Washington Post article, How Aretha Franklin's Respect Became an Anthem for Civil Rights and Feminism by Deneen L. Brown. She writes, first and foremost, Franklin's respect caught on with the black power movement and feminist and human rights activists across the world. The country was a tinderbox as people of color demanded equality and justice that had been too long coming. Despite landmark civil rights cases in the Supreme Court and the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Resistance to change in both the North and South was sustained often sustained and often brutally violent. So in black neighborhood, this is from Jerry Hershey, author of Nowhere to Run, the History of Soul Music. In black neighborhoods and white universities, her hits came like cannonballs, blowing holes in the stylized bouffants and chiffon Motown sound. A strong new voice with a range that hit the heavens and a center of gravity that was much that was very close to Earth. So this has become an anthem for the rights of oppressed peoples. The oppressed right. singer who is not getting paid by her record label, the oppressed person of color, the oppressed woman. But why? Like, so I'm gonna ask you this as okay. our as our resident woman, how does a song <laughs> that is basically super reductive and is like, I want my woman to respect me because I pay the bills, how does that turn into this anthem of self-determination for oppressed peoples. Well, I think it's just a, f- a simple flip of who is in the, whose perspective is it coming from, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like I was rolling my eyes at Don Draper coming home and getting respect from all his women. But if it's, you know, Megan Draper deserves a little fucking respect when her cheating 
loser man comes home with all his money. Yeah. And so now it's like, I'm not going to do you wrong when you're gone. And all I'm asking is a little respect. Just like the bare fucking minimum when you come home. Yeah. And now it's my money, right? Yeah. So now this is female empowerment. You know, it's, uh, you know, the Beyonce, I bought it. Right. The, so there's a pull quote that I didn't super include from this Washington Post article that said, what is lemonade if not a full album's worth of meditation on Aretha Franklin's respect? Yes. Love that. It's turning the tables. It's showing a woman in power. It's showing a woman as a breadwinner and and as the talent. And and not only do I have the money, do I have the sass, but I want the motherfucking respect. I love I love that. So there is a there's a section that Aretha added, as you noticed, and I'm going to I'm going to just send you the lyrics. Would you do a dramatic? Would you do a dramatic reading for us? Sure. R.E.S.B.E.C.T. Find out what it means to me. R.E.S.B.E.C.T. Take care. T.C.B. Sack it to me, sack it to me, sack it to me, sack it to me. A little respect. So this, in, in, in current times, this would be enough to get Aretha Franklin a writing credit on this song. It would. It would. But okay. she never filed for one. Whether, so what is TCB? So this is my question to you. What is TCB? So earlier today, you said... Take maybe, care of Bay. <laughs> close. Um, <laughs> earlier today, you said, we should do a segment where there's like a, where you quiz me on a misheard lyric. And I was yeah. like, already planning on doing this. So I was like, okay. Oh, okay. So R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, take care, T-C-B. I think I thought it was P-C-P. You thought it was take care, P-C-P? Like drugs. I I, oh, I know what P-C-P is. <laughs> so what is T-C-B? What, take a guess. Take care of bay. It's actually take care of business. Taking care of business. Right. So take take care TCB. And that's another kind of shorthand that Aretha had with the people in her life. Her sisters was, we're going to TCB, right? Taking care of business. Um, And that also, Sakatumi and TCB became sort of shorthand anthems around the around society that was were adopted from this song so even the really memorable parts of this song were written by aretha franklin right right the the if if i stop any person on the street and ask them to sing respect they will do the r-e-s-p-e-c-t part and that happens a total of once in the song right there's like one but there's one stanza there's one couplet right yeah so even as i was listening to this earlier, I was like, oh my God, it only happens once, right? This this section, as opposed to like, I thought it was the refrain of the song. I thought it happened like seven times. Right. Um, so it's it's a really, really memorable part. And it's kind of a crime question mark that Aretha didn't get credit and didn't get paid for it. Cause, you know, it's her money. Yeah. That's it what is she's thinking about. Yeah. So this is from Slate. It's hard to wonder if the whole effort didn't blaze an extra bright message to the singer's errant husband, but Aretha herself always resisted such personal interpretations. So this is the question mm. of was she singing directly at her missing husband? And it her says missing husband. Her, her the husband that was either <laughs> not present or not invited to this recording session. Uh, Aretha herself has always resisted such personal interpretations. Indeed, she was always incensed when her private life turned up in the press, which is why, which is part of why reports of her illness in recent years, toward the end of her life, remained so vague. She was a very private person, but. I don't know. I might, this this might be kind of like the Kuleshov effect in action, but I'm juxtaposing the energy that she approaches that song with the fact that it's Valentine's Day and her husband's nowhere to be found. Yeah, I was gonna say. I'm sure she didn't. She didn't write it. She's not singing it about him. But on that special occasion, she was probably bringing a little bit of her personal life. Yeah, she to- put some stank on it. <laughs> her artistry put some english on it so otis redding when he heard aretha's respect he famously declared that girl took my song from me okay that girl but apparently that was like meant to be very uh loving it's like a kind of a like she's also 22 a woman she is she is a woman he's quite a bit older but i think wexler insisted that redding 
said it with appreciation. And the first time he heard it, he asked Wexler to play it again and again. And then a third time, the smile never left his face. Perhaps Redding mm. felt like he owed Aretha one. His producer, Phil Walden, later told Ritz, the, the, the writer of this article, that Redding's own iconic 1966 performance of Try a Little Tenderness had been trying to channel Aretha from her first gospel album, The Tender Moving and Swinging Aretha Franklin. So I'm wondering why are you why are people even doing these covers if they know they're not going to get paid? Um because they are they sell the records, so they're not going to get paid for radio, but they're going to get paid for their record sales and it just like lifts their profile, right? So right. even though it's Aretha like a never today. Right. Even though Aretha never really got paid for this song in her radio, she still made a mint on it in record sales and she became this massive star and you know, there are so many other of her songs that she did have kind of a hand in writing or had the publishing rights to and made a ton of money that way. Would you say this is a hundred percent hands down her most famous song? Yes. Um, so I don't know if it was the highest charting, but the number five greatest song of all time, according to Rolling Stone has to be, it's got the longest longevity. And I even found some some articles claiming that it, respect was a kind of an anthem for the Me Too movement, but I I kind of shied away from that uh, that comparison. I haven't heard much Me Too going back to Aretha's respect. Me either. So there are some melodic differences uh, and musical differences between Aretha's version and Otis Redding's version, and mm-hmm. so you ac- you very accurately described. Aretha's as a little bit more there's like more texture to it and Otis's as way more straightforward Mm -hmm. so Otis's version is in the key of D and the first chord is A the the chord that where the lyrics come in is the A chord and so Otis is also singing in A so he's singing the root note of the beginning chord of the melody which is the fifth of the key of the song which is like pretty pretty common it's like very simple right aretha sings the song aretha's version is a is actually a step down it's in c and mm. she is on every one of the chords that are played as a seventh chord so it feels a little jazzier there's an extra note in there that's a little bit clashy that's giving texture to the song and she sings the fifth of the beginning chord which is actually the ninth of the key of the song which is extra jazzy so to bring it back in, if she's singing the ninth of C is a D, and he's singing the fifth of A, which is also a D, so they're both starting the melody on the same note, even though the song is in two different keys. Okay. I just think that's fun. <laughs> and I think, and then she's taking it to new heights. Yes. So she's taking it to new heights. The musicality and the melody are different enough and are kind of less uh less common there's a little bit more jazz to it and a little bit more blues to it than otis's which is i really like but it's just like a whole different thing yeah what's respect without the r-e-s-b-c-t totally find out what it means to me turns out everything (laughs) so final thoughts there are some cover versions of aretha's version which is like Okay, guys, like, why? Why Why even bother? Um, But the Vagrants did it. Stevie Wonder did it. Oh. The Ventures. Stevie, I'd be interested in hearing that one. Yeah, it's the same background with the whoop whoop. Yeah, but the interesting thing about Stevie's cover is it also was from 1967. Oh, really? Yes. So a little later in 1967, but from Pop Culture Experiment, it says if it was on the the album, I was made to love her, and it felt like a descent, the first descendant of Franklin's version rather than Redding's version. Oh, very cool. Now Aretha has fans. Right. Ah, so what are you hearing now? Well, I just heard a little breakdown. Yeah. Breakdown. So it's a harmonica breakdown. 
but it's doing the R-E-S-P-E-C-T part on the harmonica. Without the words. Right, without the words, right? So it it is very much the Switzerland of versions. <laughs> um, the Ventures did it. They're like an instrumental surf rock band. Diana Ross and the Supremes t- teamed up with the Temptations to do it in 1968 Ooh. for like a live version. It's like the sounds of Motown. Um, yeah. And Jerry Butler, who was a soul singer, he he released a version, and uh, Ike and Tina Turner did it. Did a medley of "Come Together" and "Respect." It's like a terrifying abuse medley. Now, by the by, nineteen seventy one, which is when this happens, the R.E.S.P. seat that's like part of the fucking song. Take care of TT. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but they're going into Tina that. Tina Turner. Oh shit, that's pretty good. Um, and now they go into that like gospel end of the church service drum okay. pattern. This is a lot more cocainey. I understand now. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's a lot. It's a lot yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah. I think she does the funky chicken for a, <laughs> for a minute. Yep. Yep. She's talking about respect. But instead, yeah, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. So I'll talk about soul music. Soul is what I call grease. Soul is what I call grease. Comes out of the kitchen. That's why you do your cooking. All right. You do everything with grease. <laughs> but I'm gonna give you. This video should be illegal. Not that you don't already have keep it greasy so it goes down easy. Did she okay. say that? Did I miss that? <laughs> no, 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 no. So other notable covers. There's an English post punk band a r&b singer called a diva or a deva jennifer batten um who is like a like a like a metal guitarist i think are you sure i thought she like sang a song from twilight so so this is jennifer batten's cover of respect from 1992 wow so this is like what are you what are you hearing um like White Snake, I don't know. Yeah, it's like if White Snake was was sung by Melissa Bonnie Mel- Melissa F. <laughs> yeah, Bonnie Raitt. Yeah. I ain't missing you at all. <laughs> um, yeah, and so this is like a this is like a cock rock version of of this, which is interesting because it's 1992, so it's like just the very end of this being even remotely acceptable. Yeah, the death rattle. Yeah. And so, 10 years after that, in 2002, Kelly Clarkson won the first season of American Idol and did a version of Respect, which is kind of the most recent official, quote-unquote, cover uh, that was at least remotely famous. It says a modernized version of Respect. Ooh. So, let's take a listen. Quote, it was not a phoned-in karaoke tribute. So what are you hearing? Kelly Clarkson. Piano. Yeah. Some... Yeah, there's like some white guy funk porn guitar (laughs) going on. Yeah. And there's like a a Hammond organ in there. Mm -hmm. So this feels like a very kind of Starbucked version of the song. Justice for Kelly Clarkson. Yes. Because I like Kelly Clarkson, but like, this is not good. So, you ready for the bonus round? Am I? Are you? What is the bonus round? This whole story has been about Aretha singing a song that was not intended to be hers. But there right. is there is a there is an interesting case of a song, a very famous song being written specifically for Aretha that she turned down. Tell me more. So in 1970, Aretha met up with a singer-songwriter by the name of Paul McCartney, and he was working on kind of a gospel-inspired track called Let It Be. And so Let It Be was originally written with the idea that Aretha Franklin would sing it. But Paul said that he wrote Let It Be about his mom, so why did he want Aretha to sing about his mom? I think because it was like a gospel-inspired song like he wanted the queen of gospel um but i don't actually know i don't know why he wanted her to have it over over doing it with the beatles 
But it was the Beatles' last record. Let It Be was the Beatles' last record, right? Was it? I think so. The story, so this is from CheatSheet.com. Let It Be is one of the most famous songs the Beatles ever released. It's easy to see why. The song's combination of soul, gospel, and pop music helps it to connect with many different types of music. Surprisingly, the Beatles were not the first artists to release their version of the song. Aretha's Aretha Franklin's version was released shortly before the Fab Fours. Franklin is largely responsible for her version of the track, Languishing in Obscurity. Why? Franklin inspired McCartney to write Let It Be. The track was written in 69. Paul sent a copy of the song to Jerry Wexler, the producer that Aretha worked with at Atlantic Records. He wanted Aretha to record a version of the song. And Wexler said it's, quote, highly possible that Paul wrote the song specifically for Aretha. It was included on one of her albums called This Girl's In Love With You, which had a bunch of different covers on it, including another Beatles cover of Eleanor Rigby. Love that song. It was released two full months before the public heard the Beatles version, but it never okay. became a single. It was well received by critics and fans and Beatles fans, but it, Wexler says that Aretha did not want her version to become a single, even though Wexler felt the Aretha's take on the song was beautiful and would have been a smash hit. She wouldn't. She didn't like it. She didn't like it. Yeah, she uh, she just like didn't think that the song was like worth it. And then when the Beatles rude. decided to put out their own version two months later, they their people sent Wexler and Aretha a legal notice saying that Aretha couldn't further release the song as a single, right? She had, like, missed her window. It's good. I like it. Yeah, it's a really good version. I still like the Beatles better, but... It's like chocolate and vanilla, man. It didn't seem like uh, there was any bad blood between... Aretha and the Beatles because she still went on to do more covers of Beatles songs. What other songs did she cover? The Long and Winding Road and The Fool on the Hill, which is not a song I particularly like. So interesting Beatles note. I said that Let It Be was their final album. Technically, Abbey Road was the last album to be recorded, but Let It Be was the last album to be released. So Beatles people, I don't know, get a life. Yeah, and so that is our episode for this week. Any final thoughts on the 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 long and winding road that gave us Aretha Franklin's respect? I guess I just wish she wrote it because when I was listening to it, all of the things that we talked about, about female empowerment that we get out of her version, I was really resonating with that. I'm wondering, does it, does it make it any less prescient knowing that she it was like a found poem instead of a written poem? A little. I'm just like that type A person, I think, where I'm like, yeah, it does. I, it's great. I love what she did with it. I love that she took it and ran with it and gave it the fuel. And repurposed it. it and yeah. Yeah. All the power to her for doing that. But am I a little bit disappointed that some guy wrote it about, you know, his boo-hooing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, I have, I have a similar kind of type A reaction where I just assume that whoever is writing the song, whoever's singing the song wrote it because there is something very personal to opening up your poetry to the world through your voice or whatever, whatever kind of flowery thing you can say about songwriting. But there is, I think the other side of that coin is like, not only is it this kind of repurposed thing, but she repurposed it to make it mean the exact opposite of the thing it originally meant. So it's like there's like a little bit of a fuck you in there that I think makes it kind of sweet. I agree. But I also wonder, it's just, I mean, it's just gender dynamics. Mm -hmm. She is inherently a woman. If she sings the song, it's going to flip the meaning. Yes. Especially because of where we were back then. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good point, but to me it doesn't sound like she's uh phoning it in. No, 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 no. And I don't think she I think she was probably hopefully walking the walk. Mhm. Mm but you see that a lot when a singer takes a song, they'll just, you know, change it to fit their gender. Yes, the gender flipped song, right? Yeah. So, fun last little bit of trivia that I couldn't really work in anywhere else is the B so, so when Aretha uh released this song as a single the b-side was called dr feelgood <laughs> what and it's not we... the motley crew dr feelgood 
Can we hear it? Can yeah. we go out on that? We're going to go out on Dr. Feelgood by Aretha Franklin. Tune in next week. This has been our show for this week, Lyrics for Lunch. And you can get us on Twitter and Instagram and social media in general at Lyrics for Lunch. Or for longer and weirder stuff, shoot us an email, lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Um, we have if a website. you want to hear a song, send it to us. Yeah, if you want, if you have a, a, a weird song suggestion or a song with a hidden meaning, let us know. And until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying, sock it to me. Thank you.